0: This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Good afternoon. I am Deb Hutton, your host for this afternoon. We're going to change things up a little bit and start right off the top with our show uh, featuring a guest who's joining us. Her name is Rachel Dory. She uh, was initially an analyst with the coaching staff of the Vancouver Canucks. And she has recently filed a B.C. Human Rights Tribunal complaint against the Vancouver Canucks. Joining us is Rachel Dory. Welcome to News Talk Today, Rachel. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. More importantly, how are you doing? Uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, uh,
2: mentally and emotionally exhausting, I'd say. But I guess that kind of comes uh, with the allegations I've made.
1: So let's uh, spend a few minutes just filling our listeners in on what those allegations are, your history with the Vancouver Canucks. You were hired in, what, 2018 initially?
2: Uh, No, so I was hired uh, with a different NHL team uh, much earlier. I was hired with the Canucks uh, in January of this year, actually. So it's relatively uh, recently, I would say, once uh, there was a regime change uh, within the Vancouver Canucks in December of last year. And the man that they brought in uh, to lead the charge is the one who brought me in.
1: And tell our listeners what exactly happened and what the nature of your uh, complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal is.
2: Yeah, so um, I would encourage everybody to, to read the complaint because it's going to provide more detail um, than, than I can in, in an interview. But essentially, um, I was dismissed um And it was without cause, although they told me they had cause. And the reason uh, that it was was um, over a text message. But um, myself and my attorney believe that uh, there was some discrimination at play here um, because other members of the organization have done the exact same thing I have, have actually uh, done worse and, and received no punitive action. Um, and there were comments made by um, the assistant general manager to me in a private meeting that I felt uh, were discriminatory, and they caused me to have uh, some severe negative health effects, and any time that your job is causing you to lose consciousness um, or have multiple cardiac episodes, that's, very dangerous, and it's it's not an environment that's healthy. And so, for me, um, it was important to bring this forward and and speak up about what happened because I firmly believe that there is more at play here than just an innocuous text message between friends.
1: And and let us know what you believe that discrimination is based on, Rachel.
2: I think it's a couple of things. I
1: think it's compounded. Uh, it's both
2: discrimination on the basis of sex, as well as mental and physical disabilities. Um, I was open with the Canucks during the interview process in January that I had both of those issues, Um, apart from being a woman in hockey, which there aren't a lot of. And I was assured that I would be given the appropriate care. Uh, I didn't ask for any... Uh, special treatment even though under the bc human rights code i would have been entitled to it all i asked for was access to the team doctors um which is no different than any th- any other coach um, and in the nine months that i was employed there uh i never saw or was evaluated by the doctor until i had the first cardiac episode at which point i was fearful for my health and so uh it bases that on the fact that the Canucks dismissed me for a reason that really wouldn't stand up uh, for anybody else, uh, specifically a man, and that they didn't believe I could do the job mentally based on um, some comments that were made to me.
1: And had you experienced any of of what you allege is the discrimination with the Canucks previously in your NHL employment history? I
2: think being a woman is very difficult in the National Hockey League, generally speaking. Um, There have been points where, yes, I have felt targeted uh, because I am a woman. Um, I would say that my mental health has probably been the target, uh, the bigger target Um, in hockey, specifically the NHL. There's this facade of we need toughness and you have to be this big, brash, kind of Human being to be successful and anybody who has any kind of uh, mental illness is is looked down upon and that's why there are things like hockey talks and uh, teams doing mental health awareness nights um, because there's a huge stigma around that so for me I would say that in all of my years working in hockey I've definitely felt that people have in some cases looked down upon me because I have been open about my mental illness
1: and do you mind sharing the nature of your mental illness with our listeners Yeah, so I have PTSD um,
2: and mine presents with both anxious and depressive symptoms.
1: Um,
2: And the issue that my specific case of PTSD uh, poses is that it causes my heart to race uh, at a very high speed. And when you mix that with a heart condition, um, a lot of the times any type of PTSD uh, panic attack Results in a cardiac episode for me, so it then becomes twofold.
1: Um, I, I am going to take a moment here, Rachel. We're speaking with Rachel Dory, who has filed a, a BC Human Rights Tribunal case against the Vancouver Canucks. Just take a moment, uh, to be fair, uh, to Canucks and and read the statement that they have put out. It says, "We strongly disagree with the allegations brought forth by Ms. Dory. Our organization provided Ms. Dory with all the necessary resources, support, and opportunities to succeed in her role." We acted in good faith and imbibed by our contractual obligations, both during and after Ms. Doria's employment with the organization. As this is a legal matter, we will respond accordingly at the proper time. Do you have uh, sort of any thoughts on that statement that the Connects have put out? Uh,
2: yeah, I actually have a couple. Um, the We provided her with resources. Um, I don't know how you could say that when I was told prior to employment that I would have access to the Canucks medical team. And that didn't happen until I had a cardiac episode nine months into my employment. So I'm not quite sure that that is an accurate representation of the facts. Um, I never saw any Canucks medical personnel while I was there. And nine months is a long time um, to go without that kind of thing, especially when it's promised in an interview. Uh, or within the hiring process uh, and the other thing i'll point out is i have not publicly really discussed anything outside of that complaint um and you can say a lot of things publicly that you can't say once you are under oath in front of a tribunal and so for me um the complaint that was filed by my attorney um it is a a case file and, and cannot lie and something like that. And so while I appreciate that the Canucks responded and I didn't expect them to respond saying anything less, I would point out that they're not obligated to tell the truth in a PR statement, but they will be obligated to tell the truth in front of the tribunal.
1: And what is it that you are looking for uh, out of the tribunal process, Rachel?
2: Uh, this is, it's never been about money. And I mean, it would have been a lot easier, both mentally and emotionally, for me to take a payout and and remain quiet about this. But as we've seen, um, there have been too many examples of toxic hockey culture, and it will not change unless people have the courage to speak up and speak out against that kind of behaviour. So for me, it's what I'm looking for here is some public accountability from the Canucks, acknowledging that their treatment of me was unacceptable and it was wrong. Um, And I, I just want hockey in general to be a more welcoming place uh, to people who are not cis white men. Um, I think it, it has a long way to go. And if me potentially tanking my career working in a hockey front office means that I can affect some kind of change, um, that will be worth it for me. Because to me, this, it's not about money, it's about making it more accessible and more welcoming to other people.
1: Rachel Dory, we do thank you for joining News Talk today and sharing your story, and we wish you the best of luck. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, who says maybe there hasn't been a whole lot of fiscal restraint at the federal level.
0: It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I am your host, Deb Hutton. So yesterday, the Parliamentary Budget Officer appeared before a House of Commons Finance Committee where he spoke about the fiscal prudence, or lack thereof, of the federal government's most recent uh, budgetary update economic statement earlier this month. Let's remind ourselves what uh, Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland said earlier this month when she introduced that statement. In the months to come, we will be
3: able to invest in the Canadian economy and to be there for the Canadians who need it the most because we were responsible in April and because we are keeping our powder dry today.
1: Keeping our powder dry today. Let's hear what the uh, parliamentary budget officer said to keeping the powder dry.
4: Would I qualify this as restrained spending growth? Uh, The answer is unsurprisingly no. Uh, When the government has $81 billion in fiscal room and spends um, $52 billion of that, even after taking into account new tax measures, it's not called keeping one's powder dry.
1: That was the voice of Eve Giroux, who is the Parliamentary Budget Officer for Canada. And joining us on News Talk today is Mr. Giroux. Welcome to News Talk today. Thank you. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your comments around uh, keeping the powder dry. What what do you mean by that?
4: Well, uh, maybe the Minister and I mean two different things, but what I meant by that is when you see that the economic situation and inflation is generating more tax revenues than the government anticipated and program expenses are coming in at slightly lower than expected, that's generating about $80 billion in fiscal room that was not anticipated at the time of the budget of that 81 billion dollars in fiscal room the government has spent more than 52 billion in the update or between the the budget and and the update so um i don't qualify that as very like restrained when it comes to spending because the government is spending way more than half of the fiscal room that's that's available and that's not that's not in the budget yet so it's after the budget so who knows what's going to happen when the government tables its next budget
1: now you also made some comments i believe about uh some new measures that didn't have a lot of details that concerned you
4: yes the government has uh indicated in in two like two very discreet lines that it's setting aside money for anticipated decisions or near-term pressures and so it's not providing a lot of detail, in fact, no detail at all. But the, the amount seems to be rather precise. It's not a round number as you'd expect. So there's decimals after, after the number. So the government seems to have a pretty good idea as to the measures that it will finance through these two lines that are very vague. So it, it's not necessarily a bad practice to do that, setting aside money for decisions that will be made soon but what will be difficult is when the government finally announces these measures it will indicate uh, the gross costs for example whatever the measure is gross costs minus amounts already set aside or already provisioned uh, with a net cost that will be significantly smaller but it will be very difficult for parliamentarians canadians or even my office to figure out of that 14 billion dollars that the government has set aside in the fall statement how much has been used for what and whether there is anything left or whether there's been uh, any double counting for example so it makes it very difficult to follow the money what's the source of fund, and where has it been used because it's not very transparent so that's what i mean by that
1: so uh, you you know you just referenced the fact it's hard for us as taxpayers and hard for you as the as the parliamentary budget officer to to know what's actually happening here. Perhaps it's appropriate for you to just take a few minutes and and remind our listeners what the purpose and the role of your office is.
4: Uh, certainly, that's a very good point. So the office is, was created to help parliamentarians. So that's MPs and senators have an independent and nonpartisan perspective on the Canadian economy and the public finances. And the intent behind the creation of a nonpartisan independent budget office is to ensure that MPs and senators don't have to rely solely on the government's numbers, mostly the Department of Finance, but also other government departments when it comes to costing major initiatives Or getting an idea of the state of the nation's finances, the deficit or the surplus, as well as the general state of the economy, economic growth or or contraction, so that MPs and senators can debate spending initiatives or tax initiatives or the budget, having our uh, perspective on the cost of government measures, as well as the state of the economy and the state of the government's finances overall.
1: And someone might say, well, isn't that similar to what an Auditor General does? What is the difference?
4: It's it's related, but it's not the same thing. We will be asked to estimate what something will cost or what will the deficit be in a couple of months or in a couple of years. So we tend to take a more prospective approach, whereas the Auditor General, as the name suggests, uh, walks into a department or uh, looks at the books uh, for what's happened in the past. So they will tend to have a more retrospective point of view on things with the goal of improving government accounting, government reporting or government processes going forward. But they look at what has happened, what went wrong, what, what went well, whereas we will be taking a forward looking perspective on things.
1: Uh, We're speaking with uh, Yves Giraud, who is the Parliamentary Budget Officer for this uh, country. So given your forward-looking role, how did you feel about the projections in the face of what may well be a recession here in the country?
4: Well, we don't see yet a recession as the most likely scenario. What we anticipate is that it will likely be an economic slowdown, which is, probably already well underway, but we don't think a recession is a foregone conclusion. Uh, We think it's still possible to avoid a recession. And even if there was a recession, it wouldn't be a 1982 type of recession where unemployment soars to well above 12, 13 percent. So we anticipate if there is a recession, it will be a rather mild recession, given that the labor market is very tight as it is. So a recession would not see widespread unemployment.
1: So were you comfortable with where the government uh, was was in terms of its projections for both growth and revenue?
4: We don't have major differences between our own projections when it comes to the economy and the budgetary deficit with what the government has has in store. What was surprising for us and for me was the amount of measures that were and spending measures that were included or are undertaken after the budget. But when it comes to economic and fiscal projections, uh, taking into consideration, of course, the measures that were announced, uh, there is not a significant or a major difference between our numbers and those of the government.
1: And as you outlined at the beginning of our chat, uh, Eve. It- 50, they had an additional 81.2 billion dollars in what you would call fiscal room in other words, more revenue than they expected and mm-hmm. they spent 52.2 billion of that so-called room as opposed to putting it away for safekeeping, creating a budgetary surplus.
4: Exactly.
1: And any further concerns around what that spending was? I I know you you spoke very briefly about the the lack of transparency in the 14 billion, but any other major concerns about it?
4: Well, if the government had not spent all, or the vast majority of these uh, fiscal room, um, budget deficits would be about $8.7 billion lower in each of the the six years uh, In the fiscal planning horizon. So significantly lower deficits would be in the pipeline, sorry, uh, in the absence of these uh, additional spending measures that were undertaken between the budget and the fall economic statement.
1: Yves Giroux, Parliamentary Budget Officer, we thank you for your time and the clarification on the government's fiscal statement. I'm Deb Hutton, this is News Talk Today. Stay tuned, we're going to talk DNA.
0: It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host of News Talk Today, Deb Hutton. So yesterday, police in Toronto made an arrest in a pair, not one, but two cold case homicides dating back nearly four decades. Chief James Raymer made the announcement yesterday morning.
4: Joseph George
5: Sutherland. 61 years of age of Moussini, has been charged under the 1983 criminal code with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. As relieved as we are to announce this arrest, it will never bring back Aaron or Susan.
1: Homicide detective Steve Smith uh, went on to say that advances in technology made this, these arre- this arrest in these two cases possible.
5: We're able to use investigative genetic genealogy To narrow down a suspect family and from there we're able to narrow down a suspect who is obviously under arrest today.
1: Investigators built what they called a family tree of the suspect's nearest common relatives before they served him with a warrant to test his DNA.
5: Now that suspect has been in Ontario for 39 years since these murders so obviously we're going to look into every possible connection to any possible case throughout Ontario to ensure that he isn't responsible for any other offenses.
1: So for people who do this sort of thing for a living, who follow genetics, who follow cold cases, this is quite an exciting time in our history. And joining us to talk about that is Nicole Navrosky, who is an assistant professor and forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto Mississauga campus. Welcome to News Talk today, Nicole.
6: Hi there. Thank you for having me.
1: So give us your perspective on how this all happens in the world of solving cold cases. What, what is it that, that investigators actually do, and where did they get the information? So uh,
6: investigative genetic genealogy or forensic genetic genealogy, there are a variety of terms out there now, really started a handful of years ago with the Golden State Killer case. And before that, genealogists were obviously doing investigations on their own. Um, But the the DNA part really came to light or really came to the spotlight with the Golden State Killer case where investigators in theory just took advantage of the public uh, DNA databases that are used for genetic genealogy to um, run a forensically relevant DNA sample against the DNA samples that were already uploaded into the public database. So since that time, we've really seen this expansion in cold cases being solved, either when it comes to violent crimes like homicides and sexual assaults or or other crimes of that nature, as well as in the missing persons or unidentified human remains arena. And so we're seeing just an influx of cases being solved because what we have to remember is that a lot of the cases that we're seeing being solved are cases that date back to pre-DNA testing. DNA testing really came online in the mid-1980s and then has expanded since then and now you know it's become conventional or routine in our criminal justice systems around the world but genealogy has really had its uh, big spotlight or shining light with regard to cases that had forensic evidence collected prior to our traditional typing methods.
1: And, and what, what are traditional typing methods? What does that mean? Right,
6: so uh, commonly what you'll see in the courtroom right now if a forensic lab or a forensic scientist comes to testify is a standard DNA profile that utilizes or captures short tandem repeats or STRs. And these are very specific regions in a person's um, genome that we target for human identity purposes. Now, genetic genealogy is looking pretty much at the entire human genome of an individual, and really making those connections or establishing that kinship or that um, relationship between individuals based on so much more information than just those specific markers that we use in our, our regular conventional DNA testing. But I will say that genetic genealogy really is an investigative lead, so to the point of what the investigators uh, said, they utilized genealogy to really narrow down and narrow down to a potential suspect pool. And then from there uh, issued that warrant to collect a DNA sample that would then be processed through our traditional methods to compare back to the forensic evidence to make that concrete determination that we would then utilize in the criminal justice system.
1: So it points you in the right direction, sort of gives you a a narrower scope, but then still has to move forward with a warrant.
6: Right. Um, So every jurisdiction is going to be different. Canada, yes, we require a warrant. The United States, Europe, other places in the world may do things differently uh, in terms of how they go about getting that DNA sample. But ultimately, genetic genealogy is a, a wonderful tool that we are utilizing to solve all of these cases, but we still have to follow our, our policies and um, the legislation in order to properly apprehend a suspect according to what laws are in place so that we are staying you know, by the book and that the science innately um, is going through that rigorous process and we are ending up drawing the correct conclusions
1: we're speaking with uh, Nicole Navroski who's an assistant professor and for a forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto Mississauga campus. So is this really at its core all about the the sort of fun and interesting Christmas gift type things of 23andme and ancestry.ca is this is this why we are seeing much more of this happening? I think that's how it all started. So when we going back to the Golden
6: State Killer case, it was really just dependent on those individuals who had purchased those kits and uploaded them into GEDmatch or a similar public database. But now, with kind of the the fast-paced nature of genetic genealogy, both within the forensic arena and then within the um, investigator arena, because we are seeing substantial growth you know, with law enforcement agencies utilizing this technology, we're seeing crime labs wanting to implement this technology in their own labs. We are seeing a little bit of a shift so that our databases are a little bit more comprehensive, but also a little bit more thorough in terms of the checks and balances of samples going into those databases. And what we're also seeing is private companies, so dnasolves.com, that has the information related to the case that we're talking about today, um, you can actually submit your DNA sample directly to them, and then they store it in their private database. So we are moving into this weird area of growth, but also a little bit more confusion in terms of how the the DNA databases are working. But ultimately, I think the end goal with utilizing this technology is getting to a place where everybody is on the same page and that we're doing as as good and best science as we possibly can to inevitably solve cases and contribute to society and, and close some of these cases and make the appropriate arrests and or make the appropriate identifications.
1: So is, is part of your caution there around public consent? I, I'm not sure I was really understanding the, the sort of making sure we're all on the same page with these different databases.
6: So I guess I meant that from um, a professional standpoint, making sure like all of the forensic labs and the investigators and the private companies are working together to provide the best possible service to society. But I would say that yes, a lot of uh, what we've seen so far, especially with those public DNA databases, Consent is the the number one thing that is focused on when you are uploading that DNA sample, right? You are consenting to provide that DNA sample. And the argument and and hot topic still debated is the fact that your family members may not be consenting, um, even though you are. And that just makes it an interesting time for genetic genealogy. And as we continue to uh, advance in this field, we will hopefully get to a place where um, you know, we're serving the most amount of individuals, and we're doing it in the best
1: way possible. Any downsides? I have about 20 seconds.
6: I mean, I just think that um, education is key, being aware of how the databases work, being aware of how forensic DNA typing works. Um, is just really, really important, and I like that forensic DNA is being discussed more now, and so a greater number of people are, are understanding kind of how we solve crime using DNA.
1: Nicole Navrowski, we thank you for your part in uh, educating us about those last few points. Uh, geneticist uh, at the University of Toronto Mississauga campus. Thanks for joining News Talk today. Coming up after the break, I'm going to take your calls 1855-633-1010. Do you volunteer? And if not, why not? It's Deb Hutton, News Talk today. <laughs>
0: This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I am your host, Deb Hutton. So do you volunteer? Is that something that you make time for in your life? Do you encourage your kids to volunteer? And if not, why not? I want to hear from you. 1-855-633-1010. Give me a call and tell me what it is you do or don't do in the world of volunteerism. You know, today is Giving Tuesday, a day where uh, charities throughout Canada uh, make a special pitch uh, before the Christmas break, before the holidays, to actually say to folks, please give of your money. And I just wanted to talk about the giving of time today, instead of just the giving of Monday, money. I'll tell you, volunteerism is something that uh, was really instilled in me and my family. it uh, We never really defined why we did it. Uh, it was just something that my parents expected all of us to do. Uh, That involved the church. I taught Sunday school in high school. That involved the local community. I volunteered with uh, the Brownies group. It's something my daughter now does. She volunteers. uh, she's, She's older. She's a ranger, but she volunteers with her sister's Brownie group. And it was just, in my parents' mind, part of giving back to your community, part of just being a good citizen in your community. But study after study, both here in Canada and the United States, has shown that we have had a tremendous decline in volunteerism. One recent Ontario study, in fact, said that 61% of organizations reported a decrease in volunteer involvement. So I ask you, why? If you're not volunteering, why are you not? Is it strictly a matter of time? Is it because everyone uh, of an adult age in your household is is working flat out? Is it about balance in your life and, and feeling like that's not part of it? one 633 1010 Is volunteerism part of your, we talked about in the last segment, DNA? Is it something that you just do and you encourage people to do? You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in the small town of Listowel, the, the Rotarians, the Kinsmen, all of those service groups were such an integral part of everything that our community had on offer, socially and in terms of assistance, all of those things. And there's been a tremendous decline in those service organizations. Younger people just don't seem to want to be part of that network. You know, is it because there are other ways to network? You don't have to go to, to a service group if you move into a, a new community to meet friends and to get to know the lay of the land, so to speak. There are There's LinkedIn. There's all the social media networks. But is that actually why you volunteer? As I said, for me, it's not. It was just something that was instilled in me from a very early age. It was something both my parents did in whatever capacity they could right through till my my parents were both in their 80s and still volunteering. In fact, I laughed at the fact that they were delivering together meals on wheels to people who were in some cases younger than they were. It's just something we did. But increasingly, it's not the case in society today. You know, a number of years ago when I was involved in in the Ontario government, we brought forward a program that said that our young folks in high school had to complete 40 hours of volunteer service. The goal behind it was to both give them an opportunity to explore different avenues. It was an opportunity for them, as I said, to network, but it was also just building good citizens who gave back to their community. 1-855-633-1010. One eight five five six three three ten ten. On this Giving Tuesday, asking, do you give of your time? Eva, in Toronto, do you volunteer? Eva, have I got you? Yes. Go ahead. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead.
7: Super. Uh, yes, thank you so much for having me. I uh, do. I am actually located in Ottawa, um, and I volunteer on the board of directors of a company of fools, which
1: is our um, small Shakespeare in the Park theater company. And and what motivates you to do that? Is it interest in, in theater? Is it uh, wanting to give back, or is it just something that you like to spend your time doing? It's a mix
7: of all, really. The thing that uh, the thing that got into the the thing that got me into it was driven by passion. I feel very. Passionate about arts and culture, and I uh, was looking for a way to get involved in the industry. And uh, I met some incredible people, some of which who are um, on the board as well today. And uh, they were looking for they were looking for board members to come and contribute to the company. So I got an opportunity to um, to join them and have been able to contribute uh, to the growth of the company,
1: which has been wonderful over the last few years. Fantastic, Eva, thanks for the call. Let's go to Brett in Toronto. Do you volunteer? And if you do, why?
8: Yes, I'm a volunteer with Tri-Community Ambulance Service. Um, It's in New York State. Uh, I do it because it's uh, fulfilling, uh, personally.
1: It just, it makes you feel good about giving back or helping people, both? Uh,
8: Both of those things, Um, giving back, helping people, for me, it was my backup career. I didn't end up doing it, but it was plan B when I went through college to be a paramedic. So this lets me dip my foot in that pool and, and get that kind of self-reward too. I do. Some people play soccer. For me, I go get on an ambulance.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for the call, Brett. Yeah, I mean, uh, interested in all of the different reasons, as I said, for why you do volunteer and why you don't. Do you just not have the time? Is it not something you're comfortable doing? Or if you do do it, are you trying to network or is it really altruistic where you just want to be involved and, and as Brett just said, it makes him feel good about what he's doing? Let's head to uh, Mike. Mike, go ahead. Do you volunteer? And if so, why?
5: Uh, yeah, I've always volunteered for stuff. i had both positive and negative experiences. Right now I'm volunteering at a food bank and I'm also volunteering as a board member for a local community group. Um, The negative experience that I've had is being a minor hockey referee, and I gave that up very quickly because of obvious reasons, um, because the the parents were so unruly. Um, And I've also found out, you were asking why people aren't volunteering. Yeah. Um, I find that, uh, we just recently in my community had to close down a, a Lions Club because the all the old guard who used to do all the work, none of the new, new members wanted to volunteer for any of the executive positions. So I think it, it could be a bit of a generational thing if it's not encouraged by the parents.
1: All right. Thanks for that, Mike. John in Burlington, do you volunteer? And if so, why?
8: Yeah, I, I volunteer for a group of... Team Rubicon. It's mostly ex first responders IN military.
1: Say the name um, again. I'm
8: retired. Team Rubicon.
1: Team Rubicon. Okay.
8: Yeah, it's, it's North America wise, uh, wide. It's, it's picking up here in Canada. We do disaster response. I do it because I, um, you know, it's very cathartic uh, being an ex first responder, in military, and as well, it teaches you new skills like uh, when, you know, we're clearing trees, cutting with chainsaws, rehabilitation of, of places that have been flooded, uh, hit by hurricanes. So it's it's a great opportunity to meet people who you know we're we're first responders uh who were ex-military and as well it's good for people young people coming in uh who want those skills who may be becoming a paramedic a firefighter uh a police officer and uh, you know we've uh, i just got back from prince edward island doing the hurricane recovery i was down in kentucky doing floods
1: oh, amazing uh,
8: i was up in peterborough for the deroche roche uh we've, we've been all over the place There's,
1: john thanks for the work you do and thanks for calling in glad to hear volunteerism is alive and well for some folks this is news talk today stay with us after the break
0: it's news talk today on the iheart radio talk network
1: Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk today, this week, or at least a few days this week. Uh, I I did want to – we had a a wonderful episode, and I thank all the callers who who both called in and I spoke with and those that that we didn't get a chance to talk to. I I did want to say we had a number of texts who put themselves on the other side of the volunteer issue, those who said – The rules and the criminal checks just make it not worthwhile, who said that they did a lot of uh, sporting events, and given all of the concerns there has been around amateur sport here in this country, that they had stopped doing it. So I did want to put the other side on because, of course, all the calls we took were wonderful volunteers, uh, and so just wanted to put the, I guess, the less pleasant side of volunteerism on the table. I also thought it was a uh, time for an update on Ukraine this week. A number of things have happened. Seven countries have recently pledged just yesterday in fact more aid for Ukraine as 97% of Russian, Russian missiles have been aimed at civilian targets we have nato ministers gathering in romania to drum up urgently needed support for ukraine including deliveries of electrical components for the war-torn country's power transmission that has been uh, targeted uh, so much in in october in fact let's uh, hear from the nato secretary general
7: president putin is trying to uh, destroy um, the power uh, system uh, the gas infrastructure uh, and uh, uh, basic uh, services for the Ukrainian people, and by doing that uh, when we enter winter uh, demonstrates that uh, President Putin is now trying to use a weapon, uh, uh, use the winter as a weapon of war against uh, Ukraine.
1: So joining us uh, to talk about the the change in the weather, to talk about the recent attacks by Russia is Lesia Vasilenko, who is a Ukrainian member of parliament. Lesia, thank you so much for joining News Talk today.
9: It's a pleasure, good evening.
1: So first of all, let's get an update from you, sort of paint the picture of what you're seeing uh, in terms of weather, in what you're experiencing in terms of the power issues. Just just tell
9: us what's happening on the ground these days. The predictions are coming true, the predictions that were being made since August uh, this year, that it's going to be a very cold, a very dark and a very hard winter Uh, for Ukrainians in particular, we knew that Russia would be targeting our energy infrastructure. basically to paralyze life in cities and uh, largely to incapacitate uh, the Ukrainian population. Uh, But uh, what the Russians didn't know is what kind of reaction they would get from the Ukrainian people. So despite living uh, largely in darkness, uh, both uh, directly speaking and metaphorically, uh, because the, the, the power cuts mean that we don't have any connection any internet, and the internet that sort of sends you back into the dark ages. Uh, but uh, the, despite all of the all of these inconveniences, the Ukrainian people are more determined than ever to keep fighting against uh, against this Russian plague, which is making life uh, impossible. We understand that uh, should we uh, even give a, a, a tiny glimpse of uh, to the thoughts, uh, a tiny chance to the thoughts that Russia might win, then this is the kind of life in darkness that uh, that we are to be looking forward to. This is why this is not an option and only victory for Ukraine is is the way for us to go.
1: We're hearing uh, over here reports of, of as much as 40% of your energy sector that's been damaged or, or destroyed. Is, is that an accurate portrayal of, of what you're seeing in the power sector?
9: Yes, pretty much the largest attack happened uh, on the 23rd of November. So this is just days ago last week. Uh, We had uh, over 70 missiles launched across the territory of Ukraine. Uh, Almost half of them were directed at Kyiv or the Kyiv region. Uh, Russia did try to target the energy infrastructure, the civilian energy infrastructure, but with that they managed to hit hospital's maternity wards uh, a two-day-old child a boy called sir he was killed as a result of these missile attacks and I think that the world has seen the the picture of the tragedy of his mother having to to bury her two-day-old baby um, no parent should go through this. No child's childhood and life should be robbed, but this is exactly what Russia is doing doing to Ukraine.
1: So you spoke about obviously the the human toll of of winter approaching, of of the uh, devastation of some of your power sources. What how does it change the actual military involvement with with winter coming? Is there is there a significant shift in in how things are being
9: fought, etc.? Of course, the military tactics, they are different for wintertime and summertime, especially when we're talking about uh, regions, parts of the world, like Ukraine, where the seasons are very clearly defined. It gets hot in the summer. uh, It gets very cold in in winter. Uh, We're talking about uh, having to dress our military in a different kind of uh, uniform, different kind of equipment, different kind of tactics are being applied. Um, We, uh, uh, myself and Mike. colleagues as parliamentarians, we are uh, doing our utmost efforts to summon as many weapons and equipment and ammunition for Ukraine as possible so that our military can keep fighting and can keep doing uh, going with the counter-offensives uh, that are on the way. What we cannot allow is for this uh, the, the, the a- activities on the front lines to stall and what ki- we cannot allow is uh, for Russians to dig themselves in the territories which they hold hostage under occupation. Because come springtime, uh, it will become increasingly difficult to dig them out of the, of these places.
1: I'm speaking with Lesia Vasilenko, who is Ukrainian member of parliament, uh, getting a, a sense of what it is like in Ukraine on the ground today as, as winter is obviously uh, in front of us, and if, if not already there yesterday, you guys did have some good news. Uh, seven Baltic and Nordic Nordic countries uh, spoke about additional support. Tell us about that a little bit.
9: So we had a a very good visit from foreign affairs ministers from the Baltic and Nordic states. I had the honor to be addressing the Baltic uh, Parliamentary Assembly and the Nordic Council uh, earlier in September this year. Uh, And it's good that the requests and initiatives that were voiced back in September, they are coming to life now. These include additional support on the humanitarian side. Not all of these countries have the capacity physically to provide Ukraine with, with military equipment and weapons, just simply because they do not have that. Otherwise, I'm sure that these countries would have given it up. Uh, but uh, what they are doing is they are providing us with heating equipment, uh, with uh, generators, with uh, elements and components needed to repair our power lines quickly, With uh, everything, all possible kinds of items to keep people warm through the difficult winter time. This is civilians we're talking about, and also the military who are down there in the trenches, these brave men and women fighting for our freedom, our freedom of Ukraine and Ukrainians, but also the very concept of freedom uh, as we understand it globally in democratic nations.
1: And what additional support are you looking for at at this exact moment?
9: "And uh, the best humanitarian aid Ukraine can get is weapons and it's the ammunition that goes to, for these weapons time and time again we have called for Ukraine to have uh, sophisticated air defense systems which would include fighter jets we still need to close off our skies especially over the 15 nuclear reactors which are operating in Ukraine and which can cause a severe nuclear uh, catastrophe if if hit or damaged by the Russian military uh, we are calling on this ammunition and these weapons and the equipment to be arriving in Ukraine at a steady speed and much faster than they are arriving now. For this, the world needs to reconsider their defense and security strategies, including the way the defense and security sector operates unfortunately with russia being russia an aggressor a major aggressor state with one of the largest military capacities in the world uh the world needs to restructure the security framework meaning to increase production capacities of military equipment both to help ukraine fight off Russia so that this aggression does not escalate beyond Ukraine's borders, but also so that the countries neighboring Ukraine are well-equipped and well-defended, and so that the countries helping Ukraine are well-equipped and well-defended and ready to counter any kind of spread of aggression from Russia or any other dictators that might be incentivized or inspired by the likes of Vladimir Putin. Lesia Veselenko, Ukrainian member of parliament, we thank you for your time.
1: This is News Talk Today. Stay with us after the break
0: it's news talk today on the iheart radio talk network
1: welcome back i'm your host deb hutton so one of the things i i try not to have a lot of regrets in life i try to take things that aren't as pleasant as some other things and turn them into positives. Not always successful, but I really do try not to have a lot of regrets. But there are a couple that I have, and one of them is that I didn't take time after I finished high school or after I finished university, before I started working, to travel. To just go and do and see everything I thought I could afford to do and see before I started work. Because once you start on that treadmill of work, it is hard to stop and say, hey, I'm going to take a year off to do A, B, or C. So it is something I wish I had done. It wasn't really a popular thing as I was coming through the system. In fact, I graduated on Monday evening uh, at Western and my parents drove me to Toronto and I started working Tuesday morning at 8.30. So, not even a small gap in uh, my post secondary career and my uh, adult career, I guess I'll call it. But it is gaining popularity. And in particular, it is becoming more and more popular post COVID. So, joining us to talk about that is Michelle Dittmer, who is the president and co founder of the Canadian Gap Year Association. Welcome to News Talk today, Michelle. Thanks so much, Deb. I'm excited to chat with you. So I have to ask you, because I couldn't believe there was an association called the Gap Year Association, tell us who you are and what you do. Wonderful. I get that reaction a lot. Uh,
10: So we are a nonprofit organization serving Canadians coast-to-coast-to-coast, helping families decide if a gap year is the right decision, and then if it is, how do you make it purposeful? How do you avoid the... the the real concern of your young person sitting on the couch for a year rather than getting out there and achieving some goals and moving themselves forward in their lives. So that's the role that we play. And a lot of it is just giving permission for young people and their parents that this is a viable option for them. And as you mentioned, it's it's not part of our Canadian culture. And so we uh, are here to help validate that this is a really
1: great tool for families to use in so many different circumstances. And what is your background that you provide? I mean, are you former guidance counselors? Are you um, uh, executive search type folks? What are the skills that you bring to the association that would help families navigate this? Yeah, so there is a a background in
10: education and navigating systems, um, as well as youth policy, uh, youth uh, development. We have background in international service learning, in outdoor education. So really, it is all of that experiential learning component that we bring to the table and help to connect people with not only um, what are the programs that exist out there, but also what are the, the ways that we can explore our future from a career perspective, from an education lens, and, and make sure that, that folks are, are getting on a
1: trajectory that's, that's really up their alley and, and flexing the muscles that they want to flex. Well, and as I said at the intro, for me, gap year was travel. It wasn't about, it was actually not wanting to proceed with my career, but to to just take that time and live and enjoy. But that isn't necessarily what a gap year looks like for many students. Yeah, it's really interesting. People are taking gap years for all sorts of different reasons.
10: And depending on the reason, the activities they choose to fill that time with differ. So we've got a subset of students that are coming with mental health and burnout, especially with the pandemic. They have been just completely exhausted by everything that's going on. So their gap year is a little bit more in that relaxation, self-care, pushing pause on the stress that comes with further academics. And then we've got students who are taking it for financial reasons. A lot of stress around finances. And so these students can work for the year and lower their, their student debt at the end of it. And then we've got folks who don't know what they want to study, and they're recognizing that jumping into a post-secondary program is a commitment, and it's a financial commitment, and so they're going to take some time to actually figure out what they want to do. And they can do that through um, working, internships, traveling, volunteering.
1: Um, It really kind of all rolls into a really nice package. If you had to sort of pinpoint one reason why you're seeing an increase in, in in the number of students who are looking at a gap year of all types, is there one reason you could point to? Yeah, I think it's that we're more open to this idea
10: um and, and recognizing the value of slowing down in mental health. And the pandemic really forced a lot of us to look at, as you called it, that treadmill that we're on and we're racing towards what? We we we, we realize that maybe that treadmill isn't really leading anywhere. And so having that openness to consider taking a pause rather than rushing towards whatever the next step in life has really opened the door to the conversation for this, this important pause right now. And we also know that a lot of the students missed out on a lot of those formative experiences during their high school career. So their school play, the teams, the Europe trip, all of those things that round out their skill set. They may have checked all of the academic boxes, but
1: aren't necessarily that full human being that's ready to take on life post high school. I'm speaking with Michelle Dittmer, who is the president and co-founder of the Canadian Gap Year Association about what she's seeing as a as a rise in the number of students who are taking a year off between. Uh, their uh, academic careers and their post-secondary academic careers. Michelle, is there a, a particular profile that you're seeing? Are you seeing boys more than girls? Are you seeing a certain socioeconomic background or, or cities versus smaller communities? Is there a profile that you can point to? yeah it's really a it ranges right across there is
10: no two gappers that look the same they are all on their own journey um we do see mothers of boys reaching out um that's a that's something we see commonly so the mothers are actually recognizing it in their young people um and saying maybe this is this is the tool that we need whereas when it's a, a young woman it's often her herself who's reaching out so that's one of the trends that we see, um, and I would also say that there are a lot of high achievers that are coming as well, um, that that are just recognizing that they want to be successful in post secondary, and so they're they're intentionally pushing pause.
1: So it really it really runs the whole spectrum. Now you just mentioned that that moms of boys are coming forward, but what has been the response overall from parents?
10: It's fascinating because in 50% of the conversations I have with families both the student and the parent are on board. In 25% of it is the student's on board but the parent is reluctant and in the other 25% the parent's on board but the student feels that social pressure to continue forward. So the parents, some of them are very accepting of it, and some of them are hesitant. It's not part of their lived experience, and especially amongst our uh, new Canadian populations who left their home country for our education system here. That causes a lot of friction between a young person and their parents. Um, But really it is, if we look at it as a tool, that they are going to be able to gain some skills and use this year so that they can be successful where we have a lot of really um, eye-opening conversations with families when we start to explore
1: it through that lens. But that says, I think if my math is right, 75% of the parents you encounter are on board for a gap year. Yep. And obviously
10: we're a little bit biased in that number because these are folks reaching out to us, right, okay. um, seeking yep. more information. So they're at the very least curious and open to that conversation. I'm sure there is a subset of those parents who are completely shutting it down when a student brings it up or a guidance counselor brings it up, and they never even cross our desk. Uh, so there is still um, a, a stigma against this. And uh, and in a lot of cases, students. when I'm doing classroom presentations, students say, I won't even bring this up to my parents because I know it's a non-starter
1: already. Yeah, I have to think there's a worry, not in the gap year, but that the gap year becomes permanent, I think, for a lot of uh, parents. So I have to ask you, just in the last few minutes, seconds that we have left, why did you start the association? I used to a high school teacher and what I noticed
10: in the classroom was that school became all about academics and checking boxes and all of those formative experiences were really being squeezed out in place of curriculum and students were losing excitement and losing the opportunity to explore. And so um, how do we reinsert that back in without having to shift the entire education system? Is looking at the models in Europe, Australia,
1: New Zealand, um, and that's the gap your model that's been really successful there. Michelle Dittmer, I thank you for your time. Fascinating stuff. Michelle is the president and co-founder of the Canadian Gap Year. Stay tuned. We're going to talk long signs.
0: This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. So the city of Brampton here in Ontario has unanimously banned lawn signs for municipal elections. Joining us to talk about that, and later on I'm going to take your calls on this topic, because this is one I feel pretty strongly about, is Rowena Santos, who is the Brampton City Councillor who was part of that vote. Welcome to News Talk today, Rowena. Thank you so much, Deb. Thanks for having me on. So I'm going to state my bias up front. Hands off my lawn sign. Tell me why I shouldn't feel that way.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you know, there are some residents who feel that way, but overwhelmingly over the past many elections, so this issue in Brampton on election lawn signs in particular really surfaced in 2018 where, you know, in Brampton, I'm not sure what your experience is, Deb, but certainly in Brampton, it becomes an all-out sign bore. And there is sign tampering, sign vandalism, sign theft, um, misplacement of signs, so residents who had signs on their lawns suddenly have the signs on other lawns. Um, and it's a huge burden, um, not only just for candidates and the campaigns and expenses for themselves, but also for the city um, and an environmental cost as well. So over the years, as the sign wars got worse and the contraventions to the sign bylaw on election lawn signs got worse, um, voter turnout actually went down. Um, and so we we haven't really seen um, an impact in terms of what these election signs, and I'll call that just simply a campaign tactic, um, an old school sort of outdated campaign tactic, um, does in terms of elections. So that was the premise of this. And we we received a report in the previous term of council, and in this early term of this council uh, decided to change that sign by law and not ban signs, not ban election signs, but actually regulate the placement of them.
1: So are you saying that you you have facts that lawn signs and the the all-out sign wars, as you call it, actually contributed to lower voter turnout?
3: No, I'm not saying that they did it, that they uh, contributed to lower voter turnout, but um, a lot of arguments from folks uh, in in campaigns. So I used to manage campaigns for many many years as a campaign organizer, and residents as well as candidates sometimes say, "Well, if there are no campaign signs, how do we know that there's going to be an election?" So they're trying to make a comparison between voter turnout and. Election signs, and the evidence in the United States, as well as anecdotal evidence, as we've seen in the previous elections, is that no, as as in Brampton in particular, as there is a proliferation of more and more signs in Brampton, um, v- voter turnout it doesn't necessarily have an impact. Voter turnout in the city of Brampton has been uh, abysmal over the past uh, couple of elections, especially municipally. So I'm not saying that there are facts. Anecdotal evidence says that there is in the United States. There, they have done um, research studies in the U.S., not in Canada, that the lift in terms of candidate support related to campaign signs only equates to about 1%, which is nothing um, really when you're, when you're looking at um, uh, a race with incumbents in it in particular. Uh, but also in terms of voter turnout, there really is no correlation between signs and whether or not that voter turnout will, will go high.
1: But as a voter, I feel as though it's it's part of my contribution to the democratic process to say to my neighbors, I'm supporting this candidate, this councillor, this mayor, this, this candidate in mm-hmm. municipal or provincial uh, or federal elections. It's part of my being involved in a small way in supporting a candidate.
3: Yeah, and and that is totally respected in the city of Brampton with this change in the signed bylaw. so under um, the jurisdiction of municipalities, it is our role to enforce the size, the timing, the quantity per candidate, as well as the placement where to put that lawn sign Um, and, and. You know, there are restrictions already placed um, in the in the previous signed bylaw. What we're saying is that given all of the other issues related to visual clutter related to um, driving distractions related to ongoing contraventions related to you know, an inundation of, of, of complaints from residents after the election that candidates are not collecting their signs. Given all of those other issues, we are saying that the placement of signs will be under the control of residents at their window. And that actually avoids issues related to theft, vandalism, misplacement, clutter, um, visual driving distractions, etc. but still allows for you to express
1: yourself. I'm speaking with Rowena Santos, who is a Brampton councillor and who with her colleagues unanimously uh, chose to ban lawn signs for municipal elections in the city of Brampton. So given the parameters that city council already has over the placement of lawn signs, why not work within that? Why not uh, have stiffer penalties when candidates leave their lawn signs up? for weeks after the election, different penalties if they put it on certain public property, certain penalties around the size of the sign. And as you said, you already control the number of signs. Like, it still mm-hmm. seems to me that you can fix some of the issues around vandalism and, and dirty tricks in political campaigns by mm-hmm. just drilling down a little bit more in some of the regulatory framework that you already had it as a city councilor.
3: Yeah, and and I hear you on that. We tried that. We've we've tried um, different things related to that, and and the bylaw enforcement resources during the election campaign period really gets completely absorbed and preoccupied with dealing with signed complaints and this is not just complaints related to private property it's also public property and it, it um the costs associated with bylaw enforcement so to investigate uh, and enforce one sign infraction infraction cost the city about 120 to 130 dollars per sign and in this Municipal election alone, there was one candidate, and I won't say who it was, but I've heard there's been one candidate who's already um, gotten twenty five thousand dollars worth of sign sign fines, and so. And and, and unfortunately, it costs the city a lot of money to deal with illegal signage on public and private property. It takes time, resources, and that money is never recuperated by the municipality. So in provincial and federal elections, fair enough, it's a provincial federal election, the municipality is in charge of enforcing illegal sign activity, but the province and the federal government do not give us money. To deal with those, that increase in activity for bylaw enforcement—that's bylaw enforcement officers taken away from dealing with parking issues, from dealing with property standards issues, and only dealing with signs. And so it becomes this um, sort of back and forth in terms of what what is the cost benefit of signs. I'll give you another example, Deb. There are already restrictions on whether or not residents can put signs up. When when canvassing door to door in a townhouse complex within a condo townhouse complex, residents tell us all the time, the condo board will not allow us to put signs on our lawn. Or if you you live in a condo building or an apartment building, you're not allowed to put signs on your balcony for the same reasons as it relates to safety, visual clutter, et cetera. Um, So some of these restrictions are already in play. What Brampton is doing now is maintaining freedom of expression trying to get rid of the consequences related to illegal sign activity
1: and actually putting more control in the hands of the residents. But I'll say, Rowena, that that if you live in a condo complex or you live in someone else's building and you rent, that's a private property issue. That's very, very different than a city councillor, I'll say incumbent city councillors, saying to me, you shall not put a lawn sign on your private property.
3: The the, um, uh, jurisdiction under the municipalities is that we are um, in charge of enforcing and creating regulations related to the placement of the signs already.
1: All right. We and I had so many more questions for you, but I do, (laughs) I do. I will say I truly appreciate how vociferously you defended the city council's position. You did a fantastic job. You (laughs) haven't made a convert out of me and I'm going to take to the phones after the break, but I do thank you for coming on and speaking to our listeners today
3: thank you deb and i'll just finally add the environmental issues related to the signs as well and uh, i'm sure you'll get some some questions about that too thanks for having me on
1: thank you rowena santos a city councilor out of brampton i want to take your calls 18556331010 are you with me Rowena did a great job but did not convince me that I don't have a right to put a lawn sign on my lawn during election time. Give me a shout. Do you agree with me or are you with Brampton City Council? It's time to get rid of the clutter. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeart Radio Network.
0: This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
3: It becomes an all-out sign war. And there is sign tampering, sign vandalism, sign theft, um, misplacement of signs. So residents who had signs on their lawns suddenly have the signs on other lawns.
1: Welcome back. That was the voice of Rowena Santos, who is a sitting Brampton councillor. She and her colleagues in Brampton unanimously banned lawn signs. Want to take your calls on this? one 855 1010 I will say Rowena made a fantastic case for why lawn signs should not be allowed during election time. I, however, was not convinced. Hands off my lawn sign. I think it is anti-democratic. It is my right to actually express who I'm voting for. I had not one but two lawn signs on my little plot of garden in the front of my house this year. I had a uh, 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 sign for John Tory as mayor and Jay Robinson as my local councillor. It's part of what I do. As soon as lawn signs are allowed, I call up and say, please put one on my front lawn. I want people to know who I'm supporting. I think there is something to be said for if you know your your neighbors, you know their values, and you say, hey, he or she is supporting this person or that person. That's interesting. I'd like to talk to them about it. one 633 1010 The one point I didn't get to with Rowena was that of incumbency. We all know that in municipal politics, incumbency matters far more than at even provincial or federal levels of politics. And and so I do believe that this particular legislation is uh, self-serving, as well as responding to some of the complaints that they, I'm sure, legitimately got for Brampton. But I say, deal with those complaints, figure out how you get rid of some of the concerns Around lawn signs and vandalism and all of the concerns that I realize are legitimate. But don't tell me I can't put a lawn sign on my own property to express my democratic will in an election. Let's go to the phones, one eight, five, five, six three three, ten, ten. I'm gonna start with Susan in Toronto. What's your view on this, Susan? Hi. Um I, I respectfully
11: disagree with you. I'm fully in support of autonomy and taking care of one's own property and having that right Um, but I think you already have many restrictions that govern what you can and can't do on your own property on your own lawn on your own driveway and this is another one and I do believe that the issue of safety is something that can't be neglected as far as the, the council et cetera, being self-serving. Yes, that probably is very, very true, but that's true in every level of organization. The more complex it is, the more self-serving they can be um, under the thought of helping the general populace. But uh, yeah, it's another aspect of safety, and I do believe that it interferes with people's driving, first and foremost. I see people, myself included, when I'm driving, I wanna see what it says on the sign, who it is, and so on. So it is distracting. We have enough distractions and enough evidence of what happens when people are distracted when they're driving, so I think you have to forego some of that ability as far as dealing with or interacting with neighbors who are like-minded with elections, et cetera. You can look at it that way. It's also divisive thing. When you know who your neighbors are, they disagree with you. Some people can become very, very um, positional, and that can break up the neighborhood cohesiveness.
1: So if your main argument, Susan, is safety, what about real estate signs? They go too? You don't get to put your house uh, up for sale and let your neighbors know it's for sale?
11: You do. Again, you're talking about volume. If you would have dozens, and Brampton has had dozens. I don't live there, but I'm familiar with Brampton. They have had dozens and dozens inundated in one small area. That is distracting, and there is a safety issue then.
1: All right, Susan, thanks for the call. Let's go to Lewis in Toronto. Lewis, hands off my lawn sign or not?
12: So I'm totally in agreement with you, Deb, on this one. I think it's a Canadian political tradition to have lawn signs um, I think the city of Toronto, which is what I'm most familiar with, only allows lawn signs on private property. And I couldn't believe the, um, the lady from Brampton who says it costs $120 to investigate. I know I was a volunteer on a political campaign, and um, they returned uh, lawn signs that were placed on public property or on a, on a park or uh, beside a street. They would return them to the campaign office um, and just dump them in the campaign office with $20 for every sign that was misplaced. Um, And the campaign very quickly realized how expensive those fines were and they stopped the volunteers um, from placing them anywhere but on private property. So I think the idea is easy to enforce uh, and uh, I think private property owners have the right to take a sign and, and display a sign.
1: All right, Lewis, I'm with you. And yeah, I agree, there's gotta be a better way if if you have some concerns about whether it's public property or the volume of signs, then deal with that. One eight five five six three three ten ten. 633 1010 Are you with me on this one? Or do you support Brampton City Council in getting rid of lawn signs for municipal elections? Let's go to Bill. Bill, what's your thought on this?
8: Yeah, but I usually agree with you, but on this one I'm going against you. I, I live oh, in the city Bill. of Court Lakes here. I know I'm in the city of Court Lakes, and the signs are still up, and the people have already been in their chairs already. But so Bill, what if
1: the- what if we wait, what if we gave them big fines, and then you could recoup no. the money? What's wrong with that? If your lawn Devo. signs are up after a week uh, when the elections happened, big fine.
8: There's, the signs are still up around here, and Deb, let me tell you something. I'm a firm believer people have already made their choice before these signs go up. Anybody that's into politics or even watches elections federally, provincially, or municipal, they've already got in their mind who they're going to vote for. They don't need a sign in their front lawn to continue that.
1: All right, Bill. Well, maybe tomorrow I can get you back on my side on a different topic. 1-855-633-1010 one 633 1010 Are you with me? Lawn signs are part of my democratic right, part of the democratic process. I actually love the first morning I get up and lawn signs have gone up overnight. People go out at midnight, teams actually get involved, they volunteer, they put up the lawn signs. I wake up in the morning and there's my lawn sign on my front lawn. I love it, it's part of the democratic process. I will say, speaking of of my right, uh, there is already a threat to this bylaw uh, by a constitutional group who says it violates freedom of expression. Let's go to Lisa in Toronto. Lisa, are you with me or not?
13: Um, I, I think the impact on the environment needs to be considered. That's a, that's a pretty big factor, especially since we have you know a provincial government that violates other um, concerns right now with environment habitat. Biodiversity. When you live rarely, those election signs, it, it's a lot different. They, they're they not exactly all recyclable, and I don't know about Brampton or other municipalities, but it's definitely something that needs to be considered
1: and talked about. So, what about greater regulations uh, in a municipality around what your lawn signs can be made of, whether they're recyclable, I, whether you have to I reuse? Mean, I think the
13: case has been made to, that they're not really as beneficial as, as you know, you might think and if it's an environmental concern that's just not to create more waste like i mean they're partly recyclable but they're partly not so maybe it's time to just say we don't really need them and the bigger concern
1: should be an environmental concern all right lisa i uh, respect your opinion i still disagree i am going to put my democratic right my freedom of expression Above all of the other concerns in this one, I am and so sorry.
13: The environmental concerns
1: <laughs> I am Lisa. Okay. I am. but thanks for the call. Uh, I'm so sorry. we have so many calls and texts lined up. We are out of time, unfortunately. This has been a pleasure. I will be back tomorrow at noon. You've been listening to News Talk today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeart Radio Network.